You're listening to the Really Useful Podcast. This is the tech podcast for technophobes from makeuseof.com. Welcome to the show. My name is Christian Corley and joining me this week is Ben Stegner. How are you doing, Ben? I am doing well. Uh, it's... Uh... It's a good week. April's here. It's hard to believe. Did you get April fooled at all? Uh, no, we didn't because uh, my children were at a dance competition, so we didn't really have time for uh, any of okay, that. Okay. But uh, no, no real life ones, which is a shame. A couple of years ago, my uh, son and I, last time it landed on a weekend or in a holiday, we um, went and uh, shrink-wrapped his Andy's car. Oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> it was. I've never done something quite like that before. <laughs> uh, I thought it was funny because somebody in our Slack, there's a tool called Photopea that's like an online image editor that's free to use and it's PEA, like the, the vegetable. Yeah. Um, and that someone on our, on our Slack went on it and said, hey, Photopea changed its name to Photo Pickle. And the, the logo was like a dark green with a pickle. And I, they seemed to be confused about it. And I said, did you check what day you posted this? And I was like, oh, I got April Fool. Uh, mm. I think I did see too on Nintendo Life or a gaming site they posted uh, that they were remastering the Zelda CDI game. That for was Switch, yeah. which yeah, that yeah. was obviously not true. I did see that and thought uh, maybe, mm. but yeah. yeah, but I mean, with the way things are now, you never know, I guess. But yeah, Nintendo pretends exactly. those games yeah. don't exist. So indeed, indeed. So, dear listener, over the past few weeks, you may have noticed that we've uh, had a bit of a focus on the uh, Chat GPT generative AI topic for very obvious reasons. It's uh, the thing that's pretty much driving conversation in technology at the moment, unless we're talking about Elon Musk. And as a consequence of this, uh, we've been looking into exactly what you can do with ChatGPT and generative AI in terms of creating a podcast. So whenever you hear this sound in this week's show, the following text, but not this bit, uh, will have been generated by ChatGPT. So prepare yourselves and we're going to get on with the rest of the podcast as normal now there will be the usual conversations between ourselves because you can't script that we can't even script that and it's all saying this so um but you know for the the the, 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 the structure of the podcast has been handed over to chat gpt what were you going to say i was going to say just to confirm i am still a human i've not been replaced by an ai version of myself just wanted to Okay. I'm sure that was clear. And that was not AI scripted, despite the sound you just heard. Right, we're going to do it for real now. Welcome to the Really Useful Podcast, the show that brings you the latest and greatest in technology, productivity, and life hacks. Each episode, we'll explore innovations and techniques that can help you make the most of your digital life, whether you're looking to boost your productivity, simplify your workflow, or just stay up to date on the latest tech trends. The Really Useful Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things practical and innovative. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn something new because the Really Useful Podcast is here to help you get the most out of your digital world. And please note that this week's podcast episode has been scripted by ChatGPT, an AI language model designed to assist with content creation, in part at least. So Ben, we're not scripted now. We're going to get on with the news, then we're going to do our tips and tricks as usual, and we've got some recommendations for you at the end. Do you want to introduce the news, Ben? Uh, sure. I will read the uh, news intro here. So you want to play our little sound? 
In recent news updates, three major developments have been making headlines. The first story is about Elon Musk, who has reportedly banned the New York Times from receiving a blue flag on Twitter. The second news item sheds light on ChatGPT, a popular AI chatbot company which has been banned in Italy for violating privacy regulations. Lastly, the mobile phone marks its 50th anniversary, garnering praise for its enormous impact on modern communication systems. These stories highlight significant developments in science and technology, indicating a rapidly changing world that requires better and more innovative solutions. Okay, so ChatGPT has been blocked in Italy. The Italian Data Protection Authority has highlighted privacy concerns relating to the model. It's kind of interesting that it should be privacy that is the big draw here. I've been waiting, Ben, for um, basically a sort of uh, a Napster effect on ChatGPT and OpenAI. And I thought there'd be the music industry or publishing companies would getting that would be here would be at the forefront of um, raising their heckles, hackles on this, and you know, heckles. Yeah, I was right the first time, and demanding that the software be blocked or, or, or you know, regulated in some way. Yeah, I'm a bit surprised too. Uh, like you said, privacy. I don't know very much about Italy's. You know, some countries they always say like are more privacy focused. I don't know very much about Italy in that manner, uh, if their government focuses on that or whatever, but it is kind of odd. Um, like you say with the Napster effect when it was Metallica, I think that was kind of the, the match on the Tinder moment, right? When they found their unreleased song on Napster and they were like, okay, this can't happen. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised it hasn't been like artists revolting against tools like Mid Journey using their likeness for art and things like that. Um, I agree. It's, I guess it had to start somewhere, um, but it seems odd. I mean, I assume like TikTok isn't banned in Italy. So I'm kind of surprised that ChatGPT would be the thing that they look to ban over privacy. It is strange. Yeah. Um, so they've basically said uh, the data protection authority in Italy has given OpenAI 20 days to say how it would address the watchdog's concerns under penalty of a fine of 20 million euros which is uh, 21.7 us dollars or up to four percent of its annual revenues and elsewhere the irish data protection commission has told the bbc it is following up with the italian regulator to understand the basis for their action and now this is the thing will coordinate with all eu data protection authorities because really if one eu company uh, country decides to do something and you know this isn't prescriptive but generally speaking if one decides to do something along these lines uh then the rest of them are likely to follow or it will certainly be um, escalated to the European Parliament. So that's an interesting development, really. Uh, in the UK, uh, the Information Commissioner Officer has said it would support developments in AI, but it was also ready to challenge non-compliance with data protection laws. So, uh, yeah, it's quite an interesting development for this, for the very software that we've used to script parts of this show. I'm curious to see... I'm I'm not super familiar with like the deep inner workings of ChatGPT, obviously. So I'm curious to see uh, how if this is like a oh we can't do business in Italy kind of thing, or if it's like they have to make significant changes or small changes. Like it might just be a matter of here's how we use your data, change a few things, like you know, in every site updated for GDPR and all that. I'm not sure. Like yeah how, how drastic it'll be. Well, it's it's supposed to be about how the chatbots might deceive and manipulate people and how public authorities might control them. So there's no evidence that 
a specific privacy law has been breached, but that there's a risk to it. Is that really privacy, though? Like, well, yeah, I don't know. It's it does seem a little bit of a little bit of a stretch, but it'll be interesting to see if uh, Canada and the United States do anything along these lines in the near future as well. I'm curious as well, especially since the TikTok conversation is happening, at least in Except, the US. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure about Canada, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like we want it to more. People, I think people are excited about the innovation, but are worried about maybe we need to pump the brakes or. I, mean, I think there's a lot of other areas. If you're strictly looking at privacy, there's a lot of areas where we should focus first, I think. Um, but if you're looking at misinformation or whatever they're saying about this, I, there's there are concerns, I'm sure. Uh, I'm foreshadowing to a little bit later, by the way. So <laughs> keep an ear out for that. Okay. We'll move <laughs> on to uh, Twitter's blue ticks shenanigans. Goodness me. Whoa. I mean, we talked about this in last week's podcast, Ben, uh, Gavin and myself, and there was uh, reference to the... Um, uh, do you see uh, William Shatner's tweet about having... I don't think I did. So he, I'm a big fan of his tweets, though, because he yes. uh, linked to one of my articles years ago. So did he? I, me, did he? Me and, yeah, me and the, the captain <laughs> definitely uh, have a connection on Twitter. <laughs> you and, uh, as we used to call him, the Shat. Um, <laughs> we... Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, so William Shatner basically said something along the lines of, I've been uh, giving my thoughts away for free for 15 years, and now you want to charge me for them. Is this like a music club? Implication being so that you get sent records and then you have to pay for them, like, after you've forgotten that you've got them. Yeah, so this was the whole thing of getting a verification tick to replace the old verification tick, but with a new verification tick, you have to pay. And... It's been a bit of a bleh, over the past few days with this. For instance, the New York Times has lost its blue tick on Twitter after it said it would pay, it would not pay to remain verified. And uh, Elon Musk uh, decided to launch a volley of insults at the paper. Uh, it's been reported here. But of course, um, they've changed the rules slightly. So now William Shatner doesn't have to pay. And anyone who has a legacy verification doesn't have to pay. It's all very complicated and silly. It just seems like maybe, you know, if you had if you were verified up to this date, you get to keep it for free. Otherwise, you now have to start paying. That would have been a better tactic from the beginning, wouldn't it? Of this, yeah, I agree. This is really it's really confusing for there's several layers. Like uh, I guess first is the legacy verification. I mean, I don't. There's two parts to it. A, there's a, plenty of accounts on Twitter that were verified that didn't really need to be. I mean, some random journalist with 2,000 followers, like, do they really need to be verified? Probably yeah. not. So maybe maybe the fairest way could have been, uh, if you're legacy verified, you have to meet these basic requirements like so many followers or yeah, whatever, yeah. Yeah. that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I don't think, it doesn't make any sense to strip away verification if you already have it, especially from mass, like big time politicians, the New York Times, like massive, massive organizations. Um, doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't know if you guys talked about this last week, but my thought on this, I think we might've mentioned it like a month ago or two. Um, verification and that like, Proving that someone is a human behind the account and proving that it is who they say they are are two different things. Like you can verify my Twitter account to say, yes, this is Ben Stegner, but there aren't a bunch of Ben Stegner impersonators out there. At least I don't think there are um, running around saying they're me, right? So like, I don't, I don't need the, yes, this is the true Ben Stegner account because no one really cares, but that's separate from this is a real person and not a bot or, you know, someone using a fake name or whatever. So 
to me, there should be two separate things. Like, I don't think the New York Times should have to, or any big organization should have to pay to show that it actually is them because now someone could just make a fake. It's all the problems we had a few months ago when people were making accounts impersonating every company. Now you can just do that. And if there's no check, you don't check the follower count. You can just pretend to be anyone. So it, yeah. it's very confusing and awkward. It is. It is. So uh, that's where they are with that at the moment. Anyway, um, yeah, you know, there's so many people who have been saying that they wouldn't pay for a blue tick, but they still have one. And this seems to be because of this revision that's been made, as I highlighted at the start of this um, report. So how how they proceed with that, um, we we, uh, we will watch and see as well. You know, we generally have an Elon Musk, Tesla or Twitter discussion in the news almost weekly basis at the moment. So and he still true. he still hasn't released that bloody cologne, has he? Uh, you know what, speaking of, I'm looking at, um, while you were saying that, I was looking at the uh, the script that we read a few minutes ago, and it's actually, I don't know if it's based on what you said or if it just read the articles wrong, because uh, it says, quote, Elon Musk has reportedly banned the New York Times from receiving a blue flag on Twitter. I'm just not a blue ah, flag. yes. It's also, he didn't he didn't ban the New York Times. He just, no. the rules changed, now yeah. they don't have one. So that was uh, an yeah. inaccurate summary of the events, obviously. Which, um, you know one of the reasons why we're using chat gpt for this podcast right to, to show uh, off uh, the human element that it's lacking yes absolutely uh, let's move on to the mobile phone inventor who made the first call 50 years ago in uh, the 3rd of april 1973 even i wasn't here then marty cooper stood on a corner of sixth avenue in new york and took a phone book from his pocket then took out a large cream colored device punched a number into it and held it to his ear while people stared at him Right, just before we carry on with this, Ben, you're a little bit younger than me. Have you, do you remember a time before mobile phones? Um, yeah, yes, in in like a weird way because I wasn't fully cognizant, I guess. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, I remember. I th I'm pretty sure my parents got their first cell phones in 2001. I want to okay. say. Uh, I think they had the first like Razor flip phone. Yeah. Like every everybody had that here. Yeah. Um when did that come out? Oh no, it says it was introduced in December of two thousand three. So that's they they might have had a different phone before that, but that was like the one of the first phones I remember them having. Okay. Um yeah, but I, mean, I remember kind of a world without stuff. It's like I remember seeing pay phones and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I was so young that I probably didn't fully appreciate I remember it, but not. I didn't like live cognizantly even for years and years. I do remember a friend's dad telling me that his first cell phone was like in a bag. You know, you had to like take it out and connect it to something. Oh wow! Might have been. It might have been a car phone. I don't remember for sure. Yeah. It's kind of a, a foggy memory. We. Um. I mean. I mean. I mean, this sounds weird, but I mean, around the time this guy made this phone call, I mean, I, obviously, I don't know what telecommunications is like in the US or how how long people have had phones in their own apartments and houses and things. But you know, the time this guy made this phone call, he's a couple of years before I was born. But even you know, when I was born and up to sort of nineteen eight, well, m my grandmother didn't have a telephone until the late nineteen nineties. Oh wow! Okay. Our uh, the house that I grew up in the neighbors didn't have phones so if anyone needed to make a phone call they'd pop around your house knocking your door and say can i make a phone call because not every house had a phone so it's kind of insane to think that even though that was taking place in the uk where not every house had a phone there's a mobile phone 
in the, in you you know like a mobile phone prototype working prototype in the United States. Um, Mike Cooper worked at Motorola. He rang his counterpart at rival firm Bell Laboratories to tell him he was calling from a personal handheld portable cell phone, and he recalls there was silence on the end of the line. Mm. <laughs> I think he was gritting his teeth, says the ninety-four-year-old, laughing. He's now ninety-four, so you know he's, wow. he was in his mid mid. Mid forties, yeah, when uh, when this development was uh, achieved, uh, the commercial version of the Motorola phone is now uh, owned by the Mobile Phone Museum. So if you went along to that, you'd be able to see it. It's um, the commercial version first came along in 1984. However, it was a few years, and it would cost the equivalent of nine thousand five hundred pounds, which is eleven thousand seven hundred US dollars. That's insane for a mobile, even an iPhone, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, eleven thousand dollars. That'd be, I mean, you could. That'd be a, a MacBook, a desktop, that gold a iPhone, and an Apple Watch. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's interesting how we see these things over the past few months. I make use of. We've been uh, embracing this whole uh, on this day in tech history sort of uh, angle for, and you know, I've been lucky enough to, uh, as editor of the Tech Explained section, to be able to pick up on some uh, computer development things. Now, I missed this one because I was working on something else. Um, completely, and to be honest with you, I, I, I thought it might get picked up by the um, Android or iPhone section anyway. But it's amazing just looking back at this. Uh, we had a little chat about laptops in last week's podcast, which actually didn't make the edit, it'll be coming along maybe next week. Um, like the first laptop was in 1975, Ben. Yeah, well, it was, we can't really, I'm saying laptop, it wasn't a laptop, it was a portable computer, as in a computer right. that you could move from one desk to another in those right, days. Right. But even so, even thinking that, like, on the you know, in those days, a, t- a computer on a TV show would be like you know, banks and banks of lights and open reel tapes. But in actual fact, you go into an office, you a brand new IBM computer can be lifted from one desk to another. They can do all the same thing, those things with the lights and the open uh, reel tapes could do. So it wasn't uh, really an accurate representation of what was going on. And then you've got the, um, the mother of all demos, which happened in 1968, I think, which was the demonstration of a graphical user interface controlled by a mouse and you you know i know we're going out just after april fool's day but this is absolutely real i did this as part of my um uh, computing degree i watched the mother of all demos as it's called for the first time in about um 2008 2009 i couldn't believe what i was watching that this had happened like 30 years before yeah you think always think about like Oh, when Windows came along, that was like when people got used to using yeah. a mouse and not oh, like a ter- the text old, terminal. And yeah, or the old Mac I, OS, at least. Yeah, yeah. I would. I if you if you asked me to guess what year a mouse was first unveiled, I wouldn't have said '68. That's oh, actually, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And actually, I'm saying Mac OS. Actually, no, I'm thinking actually no on an Amiga. Um, but uh, no, it's, it happened in 1968. It's insane. Um, so these all these developments have happened long before we're aware of them happening. And then, you know, they slowly become introduced into into life one way or another with a mobile phone, with a portable computer, with the, the graphical user interface from 1968. It blows my mind saying that. So, uh, we're going to move on anyway. Uh, 
As technology progresses, so do the threats that come with it. Cyber criminals are constantly finding new ways to exploit vulnerabilities in software and hardware, leading to a rise in incidents such as ransomware attacks. These attacks wreak havoc on entire systems, causing data loss and financial damages. But is there a way to decrypt ransomware and recover our precious files? Additionally, the release of Windows 11 has left many gamers with a headache as some games fail to work on the new platform. Is there a solution to this problem? Lastly, many people pay a hefty subscription fee for programs such as Microsoft Word when there are free alternatives available. In this discussion, we will explore ways to decrypt ransomware, troubleshoot games not working on Windows 11, and discuss why paying to use Microsoft Word may not be the best option. Be interesting to see how uh, our uh, chat GPT generated intro uh, marries up with what we're about to discuss, Ben. <laughs> I don't think it's actually too bad. The only, if I was editing this, I would say that, that that first sentence of as technology progresses, so do the threats that come with it. Like that's we didn't need that. More, yeah, yeah, can definitely cut that. But otherwise, that was decently well. Uh, at least I say that now before we get well, into it. Well, let's get into it. So, um, big question: Can all ransomware be decrypted? Now, a few years ago, if you were were the victim of a ransomware attack, uh, yeah, pretty much there was a lack of expertise in this topic, and you would probably be told to either pay up or shut up, put up. You know, you would lose your data; it's gone unless you've got a backup somewhere. You're paying ten grand to get it unlocked. Then things started to change. I mean, there was a period where uh, ransomware was actually just fake, really. It was just a case of like, a browser window popping up and uh, conning people. And nothing right, right. was locked and nothing was lost. And then the real ransomware came along and it was a bit tricky to deal with. It was almost impossible to deal with unless backups were made. And then things started happening. People started leaking the decryption keys. And IT, uh, you know, uh, white hat security specialists were able to develop uh, decrypted tools based on these keys. So we're at a stage now where if your system is locked with ransomware, it cannot be unlocked. Your data cannot be accessed because it has been encrypted. In many cases, and a decryption key is now available. But not always, unfortunately. Uh, so, yeah, um... I mean, that pretty much solves... I mean, that is the answer to it. Ran, there is All ransomware can be decrypted. There just needs to be a decryption key. Some of these decryption keys are, have been made public, either intentionally or you know, by a, a change of heart from the ransomware developers, which has apparently happened. Um, for instance, there's the Jigsaw ransomware, which can be decrypted using a number of free online tools because it's pretty basic in its uh, design. So, yeah, some of them can be uh, decrypted, but I think um, as... T I mean, ransomware doesn't have a very good uh, reputation, and while it's still going on, I get the feeling that people, um, you know, groups that have been involved in ransomware have kind of backed away from ransomware as new people have come in and, you know, offered their own take on ransomware and the encryption and the damage that they might want to perform. But I guess... It's it's a strange kind of a malware that's it feels, or it has done over the past few months. It feels like it's not as bad as it was in terms of uh, how it's spreading. Yeah, now that you say that, and I think about it, that that does seem right. I haven't. It seems like ransomware for several years was like the main security threat, and 
couple of years ago, there were all those high profile cases of like pipelines and water control systems and things like that and hospitals that were being hit by ransomware. But you're right that I really haven't heard too many big, big stories uh, of that being used super often in the wild. Um, lately, it seems to be those stupid Bitcoin crypto like yeah, pig yeah. butchering scams, which I'm currently uh, ch- talking to one of them trying to get some uh, good material for an article. So Hopefully we'll see that on the site soon because that's been an ongoing discussion with this uh, jerk. Um, <laughs> what else? What else? I, I'm, like with a big like business scams. I feel like it's like the couple of the big ones last year were like the um, I don't know. I forget what the proper term for it is. Like when it's like an upstream scam where like you break into like a accounting software, or, like a database manager kind of thing, and then a bunch of companies that use it like download a poisoned update and then you get in that way. Uh, look, look, like it seems to kind right, of yeah. replace ransomware. Yes, it does, yeah. Um, I guess it's to do with the simplicity of things as well. I suppose um, if you're running out of people to create ransomware scripts, then maybe you're going to go for something that's a lot easier, such as a phishing attack or a whale phishing attack or whatever. Um, but yeah, so yeah, rans- to, to sum that up, ransomware can be decrypted as long as you have a decryption tool that uses uh, the decryption key. Now, Windows, games not working on Windows. This is a problem I haven't had for a very long time because I haven't played any games on Windows for a very long time. Now, I because uh, I use a combination of uh, Nintendo Switch, Xbox, and Steam Deck and uh, a little bit of Evercade for gaming now. I haven't played a computer game on a computer for ages. I feel, I feel like I'm being a bit sort of, uh, like I'm two-timing. Um, I was going to say, it's a weird feeling to realize that you like haven't engaged with something that you otherwise used to do a lot like that. That's kind yeah. of an odd feeling. Yeah. I remember, yeah, I, mean, I bought my first, um, first computer game I bought for PC. It was either Duke, the Duke Nukem 3D, or it was a double pack of Civilization 2 and Command and Conquer. And we're talking 1998. So okay. 25 years. I've just realized I've stopped playing PC games. Within the I'm, last, what, like year? In the last year, probably since I got okay. the Steam Deck, actually, which is technically a PC. So um, yeah, all is right. right with the world. So um, running games on Windows in particular, uh, there are various things that can go wrong. In most cases, it's usually fine, isn't it? It's just when things start to go wrong, that's when it starts to be a pain, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not a huge PC gamer, as I've talked about before on the show. I play some games... Uh, on PC with friends, because that's where they play, um, but it's definitely not my preferred platform to play on. Uh, I definitely have more problems with games on PC than I do on a console, just by the nature of it. I've had problems. I remember one game I played, I have, I used Malwarebytes Premium, and uh, the game like saved to its own folder when the game saved, and there was an error where the game wouldn't save properly because Malwarebytes was blocking it from writing to that folder. Ah, right, so yeah. I played for like an hour and then quit and then loaded back up, and I had no save data, and I realized it was just blocking that, like that kind of stuff, or just, you know, bad performance or whatever, weird bugs you have to work out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I found with uh, Windows 10 that just switching things into game mode did actually surprisingly work quite well. So that is one thing to do. Um, if there are any problems with uh, how games perform, there's some preliminary checks that you can take. So you can restart the computer to make sure this isn't something temporary or something taking up a lot of uh, memory. You can run the game in administrator mode to see if it runs correctly. You can delete any temporary files from the previous game session, but 
you know, restart and we'll do that as well. Uh, you can close apps running in parallel. You, I mean, really, I mean, other than maybe Discord, you shouldn't have anything else running. Screen capture software, you shouldn't, shouldn't take up a lot of memory, but, you know, if you're using a low-spec computer, it may do. So maybe time to bring in a secondary computer for that. Uh, online games... Uh, require users to set the date and time correctly on the device as part of uh, the logon process. So if that's not working, uh, your date and time is why. And uh, without updated drivers, your device won't get the most out of its powerful hardware. So ensure your graphics, uh, graphic drivers are up to date on Windows. Now, a couple of other things to check, which are all related to these things. Um, ensure your hardware meets the minimum requirements for that game. Winding that clock back to when The Sims first came out which i think was i think in 1999 2000 sort of a time i bought the sims i was using a computer which this was using a cyrix processor so this is the days when there was uh, more than just uh, intel and amd in the game and this cyrix processor uh, this computer didn't have a graphics card it was all integrated and it could manage to play the sims for about five minutes before crashing Oh, okay. That's not bad. And <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and because I'd I'd only recently moved from using an Amiga twelve hundred to using a PC, I wasn't wholly au fait with the whole using a PC and checking system requirements for things. So it um left me with some consternation. Um, <laughs> to be honest with you, even uh, discovering things like graphic settings and winding them down that didn't help, unfortunately. So yeah, it's important check your minimum game settings. Uh, free up system resources for the games, as we've said. This is means your processor and your RAM and your graphics processor resources, ensuring that they're free for use. Uh, perform a clean boot. That's a restart, but a proper restart. Uh, whitelist the game's execute, the executable files from security suites, as uh, Ben described earlier with Malwarebytes. Repair corrupt game files. This is something that's particularly easy with uh, digital uh, distribution services like Steam and Epic. Update the game or reinstall it. That's the final option. And if none of those things work, then uh, either there's something wrong with the game or your computer. And hopefully it's not your computer. And hopefully it's not your computer. Not, yeah, exactly. Not a fun yeah. fix. <laughs> I had a problem um, with my first PC that I built, which was in 2017. Uh, it re- I, I want to say I played some games on it and it was okay. And then, like, I built it in March. And then in October, a game I'd been very excited to play called A Hat in Time finally came out. And it was only on PC first. So I got it there. And I had a problem where I would start playing the game and it would play for a minute maybe and then crash and like crash, crash, it took my whole system down. Oh no. And I tried every type of troubleshooting I could and I ended up having to uh, RMA the graphics card, send it into the manufacturer for a fix. And it was, something was wrong because they didn't send it back and say, it's, it's, it's your problem. Like they fixed something with it. But yeah, that wasn't fun. So hopefully that's uh, oh. not something anybody has to deal with listening because it's a pain. I mean, yeah. Like you don't have, I mean, they fix it, but it just sucks that you have to go without it for a while. Microsoft Word is a piece of software that I've um, relied on a lot over the years. But, um, well, in fact, going back, it's like the old man recalls the the days pre-digital in this week's show, isn't it? I was going to say, yeah, I remember life before cell phones. Remember life before Microsoft Word? Yeah. Remember life before... I remember when I first (laughs) used Microsoft Word and I was at college... (laughs) It's brilliant, this, isn't it? They, because basically we had a row of what was uh, the Acorn Archimedes, which is a fantastic computing platform, which we had in the UK. It was ARM-based, 
So it was, in many ways, the um, a, a forerunner of mobile phones and Raspberry Pis and tablets and things in that regard. But um, And it was a successor for the BBC Micro. It was called Nacorn Archimedes. It was quite a powerful system, pretty much on par with, say, maybe an Amiga 500. Um, we had them at college. We had a lot of them at college. And one summer, because we were at college for two years, came back from from summer holidays to find that all these Archimedes were gone and they'd been replaced with uh, compacts and they're all running uh, Word for Windows. As and was that, was, uh, that was your wake-up call? That was the, that was not your wake-up call. You're like, uh, here, you're using this now. Yeah, basically. Which was a little bit frustrating because I quite I'd only just got used to the other word processor, but uh, yeah. So and and you know I don't use it anymore because I use I use I use Linux, so I don't have any per- reason to use Word. But to me, you know, finding how easy it is to use LibreOffice and also using Google Docs, I'm amazed people actually do really still pay for Word and Microsoft Office because you don't need to, do you? No, you don't. Um, we'll talk about a couple options. Um, but you're right. I also, I know people who, I, I feel like it's really not only businesses, but I see it making the most sense for businesses, both because you get the, the volume license and because there are certain features of these apps like Word and Excel that you do need in like an a, an enterprise environment, you know, like yeah. advanced features. Um, but yeah, I know a lot of people who still use like Word 07 or whatever, just because they have it and it still works for them. So why not? But yeah, so uh, this this is a uh, list of alternatives or reasons, excuse me, that you should use uh, Office Online instead of Microsoft Word. So if you're not familiar, um, Microsoft offers a free version of most of its popular Office apps. Uh, now we do have to actually say, I didn't realize this when I did this update of this article recently. Um, so the Microsoft Office name is actually not used by Microsoft anymore, except when referring to old products. Mm-hmm. So it's just called Microsoft 365 now. Uh, that's like the whole name of the, of the suite. Uh, and they don't really call it Office Online anymore. It's just called Microsoft 365 for the web. But that's a mouthful and it sounds silly. So I'm just going to say Office Online uh, and you'll know what I mean. Uh, so Office Online is a free uh, version of some of these apps. Like I said, you can just log in uh, to office.com with your Microsoft account. So if you have an Outlook account, Xbox, anything like that, you can sign right in there or make a free account. And you will find free versions of apps like Excel, Word, OneNote, Outlook, uh, Skype, uh, Microsoft Forms, Teams, and, and several others. Uh, and they are basically stripped down versions, sort of like Google Docs. So they won't have everything that you're used to in uh, Word, Excel, and, and the family, but they'll have the basics. You can make a spreadsheet. You can do basic things with formulas, type up your paper, uh, have a notebook in OneNote, whatever you want to do. Um, so for most people, unless you use a very niche uh, specific feature of uh, one of these apps, they'll work fine for you. Um, and all software is moving this way anyway, but uh, Office Online is cloud-based. So every time you save something, it saves to your OneDrive. And so it's available everywhere. So you don't have to like remember where to save it on your computer. And then, oops, I put it somewhere that's not synced to the cloud. And then you'll lose the file because you're on your iPad uh, later on at school or whatever. So it's all synced together in your OneDrive account. It's easy to collaborate too. So if you're familiar with Google Drive, should be pretty clear for you as well. When you're working on something in Office Online, you can easily share it, pass the link over, and then work uh, in real time with someone just like you can with Google Docs. Uh, And one of the other reasons to grab it over um, buying like a dedicated desktop version of Office, like Office 2021 or whatever, is that Office Online does get feature updates. Uh, So generally when you buy 
like the yearly package, like Office 2019, it's frozen in time. So like you get what it has, but you don't get major uh, updates. Whereas Office Online from time to time does get uh, feature updates. So you'll have new things to play with over time. So um, I definitely recommend checking it out. It's not ideal if you need advanced features or if you don't have web access a lot of the time while you work. Um, I believe the mobile apps work offline. I'm not 100% sure because I'm not offline very often, but um, I would give it a try. If you were, maybe you have an old version of Word and you're thinking about upgrading, uh, you probably don't need to you can just use the web version um, and you'll be totally fine and it uh, you're not gonna have an issue and it's easy to export in the actual word uh, dot word x format too um, which is easy you know it works well for working with other people who use it so you're not exporting in a, a third-party format that might not work very well and it's not word x it's doc x i'm sorry it's d-o-c-x not word x that's uh that's yeah bad. As an AI language model, I cannot comment or recommend the creation of a podcast on behalf of individuals or organizations. That is the response I was given by ChatGPT when I asked it to script the introduction to our recommendations section. It uh, seems to have a bit of a hang-up over the word recommend. Uh, so, uh, yeah. That's odd. Yeah, it's not even... It's not even a pro the the creation of a podcast. Like it's not you didn't ask it to make a podcast. Exactly. You just asked it to, that's very uh, bizarre. Yeah, it is odd. Uh, so we'll um, we'll work with that, and we will bring you our recommendations for this week. And um, cu by curious coincidence, they're both AI related. Now that oh, wasn't intentional. Of. <laughs> sort of. Yeah, uh, there was no intent to that. It's just I happened to find something that I that was AI flavored that I'd been impressed with that I'd used recently. And you know, that is kind of the, the basis of our recommendations. So uh, one of our colleagues recommended a piece of um, software, a website called uh, roomgpt.io. And um, it's a, well, it describes itself as generating dream rooms using AI for everyone. And I thought, well, do you know what we could possibly do with redecorating this room? Let's see how this works. And you basically um, take a photo of your room, upload it to the website, and it remodels your room for you. Now, it doesn't really... Um, there's a few things it won't... It, I mean, it will change things, but I mean, if there's, kind of, if there's very striking objects that are like furniture, uh, wall art, that sort of thing, it will work with that to integrate it into the new look. It might change the wall art, change the furniture or whatever, so they'll still be there in the same places. Um, I was amazed... I'm, I'm looking at an example, actually, actually on the website. The original room has a stack of um, three trunks. On the generated version of the room, it's converted those three trunks into a sort of a chair, which is quite amusing. Um, and that's the kind of thing that it does, and it gives you different textures, different colours... A lot of mood lighting I noticed um, from using it. But I was surprised just how good it is. And it's given us quite a few interesting thoughts about what we might do with our living room, which it hasn't been redecorated in uh, seven years. So it's certainly on the list to do. So uh, this is roomgpt.io. Now, there are a few alternatives to this, which I have tried out. And I have also tried one that does back um, sort of exteriors, um, landscape design, gardens etc but i don't know if you could do that room gpt.io but this is the best one that i've used so far 
uh, overall. So quite impressed with that. So that's my recommendation. That's pretty interesting. I'm looking at it, and it's interesting how it uses the current room so heavily on the generated one. Like if you don't, if you wanted to like move your couch around or something, it's kind of plays with what you have. But I agree, the uh, the lighting is way better in the the generated one. Yeah, it's a lot more welcoming and even. So that's interesting for someone like me. I'm very. I have a really hard time visualizing something if I like. If you said, think about how you'd want to rearrange this room. Like I can't just start from nothing on that i need to see like a base and yeah, yeah. something like this i can say i like this and this but we shouldn't do this and that so that's a that's a useful tool for sure um yeah okay so i foreshadowed this earlier so i'm, I'm going to take you through uh my recommendation path uh that didn't pan out the way i thought it did so um <laughs> one of our colleagues at the site recommended uh, a tool called there's an ai for that which is a website uh, that is updated daily with AI tools for various functions. Um, so as of this recording, there's about 3000 AI tools grouped into 760 tasks. So it's interesting. Uh, I think a lot of these are just kind of crappy and basic, honestly, but uh, I was poking around a little bit and I found one that creates a trivia game. And that site is called Boom with three O's. So B-O-O-O-M, Boom. Uh, it's an AI generated game. So one of them is a fact that you have to choose if it's fake or AI, if it's, excuse me, it's a fact. You have to decide if it's a true fact or AI generated. I didn't try that, but uh, Boom is an AI generated quiz uh, based on a topic of your choosing. Now, this idea is pretty cool. Um, you can invite friends and play with up to six people. It's a cool idea to try a trivia quiz um, on a topic without the questions being recycled and that kind of thing. But uh, in my testing, it is very bad. Um, I asked it for a quiz about The Legend of Zelda and as well as Persona 5. And when I asked it about Zelda, um, multiple questions are confusing. Like they're not, there's no clear answer or it's worded very confusingly. Um, and then one of them asked about uh, something that wasn't even in the game. It said, in the game, who does this? And there's just, that's not even in the game. Uh, so then I asked it about, to make a pop punk trivia quiz. And every question was about Blink-182 and several questions were just straight up incorrect. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of them were just vague. It was, it was like, uh, what, what pop punk band rose to prominence in the early 2000s and gave like multiple bands that did and then, and then it was the wrong answer like it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense so uh the idea is fun but i would not recommend it because it's not really fun to take a quiz when half the answers are either totally unclear or just flat out wrong yeah so i'm gonna pivot away from ai for a moment and recommend an app called hello talk uh, which is just one word, hello talk. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned before on the show uh, that I am kind of slowly trying to learn some Spanish. Um, there's a lot of use useful ways to do that. I'm using Duolingo. I play some games in Spanish, but um, this app is really handy. So it is a language exchange app where you sign up and say, I'm from the US. I speak English. I want to learn Spanish. And then it matches you with people who say, I'm from Guatemala or wherever. I speak Spanish. I want to learn English. Um, and you can set your like strength level from one to five on your on, on any languages you're learning. You can do more than one. Um, and then from there, there's a lot of ways to meet people. Um, there's like a moments section, which is kind of just like posting on social media where you can share whatever, share a photo, uh, share an audio notes, whatever you want to do. And then people can comment on it. Um, and you can go into a one-on-one -on -one conversation with people to chat with them. Uh, one of the most useful features is that there's a built-in correction function. So uh, if somebody says something incorrect and they're in the language they're trying to learn, you can tap uh, correct. You can fix just the part that they got wrong and it'll show them what you crossed out and what you added to make it correct. So it's a really useful way to do that without having to type out like you said this, but it should be that kind of thing. Um, 
so yeah, if you're looking to learn a language, I would recommend it. Uh, it is free, I think, for one language. If you if you want to do multiple languages, you have to pay uh, for the paid plan. But I've used it for free for a while. It's a great way to meet people from different parts of the world. Um, read how people actually use their language because I think sometimes with uh, with the apps, it's you kind of get into the rut of like saying stilted things that you wouldn't normally say uh, in real life. So it's a cool way to work with native speakers and uh, help them while they help you. So hello talk. I'd recommend taking a look if you are interested in learning some of a language. Excellent. I'm using uh, Duolingo at the moment to attempt to learn Portuguese, but I'm very bad at uh, getting a run together. I have a very long streak in Duolingo, but I also, I do it just for a little bit every day. I don't do a whole lot. Um, Hello Talk is nice though, because you, for that reason, because you can um, kind of just jump in a little bit. Like you can have a bunch of people that you talk with and have a bunch of chats going, or you can just pop in for five minutes and see what people are posting about, leave a comment, whatever. Um, but yeah, there's voice messages, video, all that kind of thing. Um, there's a lot to to work with in the app um, to help you save translations and things like that. So yeah, it's 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 pretty cool. Mm, might try, might uh, check that out. So uh, you know, we should have got ChatGPT to scrap the out uh, script to the out show. <laughs> Scrapped everything else, outro, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> So, um, you know, this has been a, a sort of a multi-tier podcast this week. We have found out how well or otherwise ChatGPT can script a podcast. We have learned various things about uh, Elon Musk and ransomware and whether you should be using Microsoft Word for free um, or Microsoft uh, Office Online, whatever you want to call it, and um, how to fix games that aren't working properly on Windows. And you've got our recommendations. You've been listening to the really useful podcast from makeuseof.com. This is the tech podcast for technophobes. And we are here to uh, help you make best use out of your technology, just like we are at makeuseof.com. That's what we do there. If you have any suggestions for the podcast, uh, let us know via Twitter or on Facebook. And, um, yeah, uh, share the podcast far and wide if uh, you think uh, anyone will uh, benefit from what we've discussed. And, you know, I don't think there's another podcast that has been scripted by AI yet. Certainly not a tech podcast. So um, thank you to uh, ChatGPT for uh, helping for us. Beautiful out. insight. Yeah, it's, we're yeah. blazing trails here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, one way or another. We'll be back next week. Until then, it's goodbye from us. Yeah.